how it lights my path, how it guides my way. We're going to have a reading, and I've asked um, Janet and Ethan to come and do a piece each from Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 onwards. Ethan's going to do the first section, and Janet will ring, uh, read the second section. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment is the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brothers and sisters trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking that they are causing me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is pro proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. But not only that, I also will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If it is to be life in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is clear omen to them of, your, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict which you saw and now here to be mine. Thanks, Debbie. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word that Debbie has prepared for us, Lord. We thank you for the, the richness of the words in these verses, Lord, and we pray, Lord, that we, our hearts will be opened to hear, to be receptive, and to take in your wonderful touch on our lives through the ministry of these words, Lord. I pray for Debbie right now and encourage her and strengthen her in Jesus' lovely name. 
Good morning. So here we are, continuing our journey through the book of Philippians in the Bible. And you may or may not already know, if you were here last week, you'll have heard Steve introducing the first part of the first chapter for us. But this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. And when he is writing to encourage those Christians, he is writing from a place of imprisonment and chains. So not a particularly cheerful and happy kind of circumstance around him. And yet he is writing these incredible words to the churches. I love the fact that the churches and the people who have come to know Jesus, that is what is in his mind. I think if I were writing a letter from prison, having been thrown into prison for preaching the gospel, my letter to those people I knew and loved in Philippi might be a bit different. It might be a bit more me-focused. What do you think? It might be a bit more like, please pray for me. It's terrible here. I don't like the food. The soldiers are mean to me. Uh, This is happening. That's happening. But this is what's on his heart. This is what's on his mind is everybody else. These Christians that he knows he carries this responsibility for from God to be investing in, strengthening, speaking to, blessing, encouraging, building up. That's what is the focus of his mind. And I want to kind of start our thoughts this morning by landing at verse 27 for a moment because in that verse... Paul kind of, maybe inadvertently, he sort of gives us two descriptions in the language that he uses, two descriptions of what the church is. And it gives you this kind of insight into how he understood the people of God and how he would see us if he were standing in the room today and looking around at us as Christians, how he understands us, our role, what church is all about. And he uses these kind of two words that give us two clues to two images of the church. First of all, in verse 27, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. But that word, conduct yourselves, is an interesting word in the Greek. It literally means be a citizen, be citizens together. Live together in a civic society. It's the word politeumai, if you're interested in Greek. You can hear the word politics in there, can't you? It's that idea. Live together in a society as citizens. And you can see there that Paul is imagining, by choosing that word, there's loads of other words he could have chosen, by choosing that word, he's looking at the people of God or imagining them and thinking, yeah, they are a community of people, a society of people. A community is a group of people who live together in an ordered kind of way, aren't they? With a a common set of rules that they are largely all trying to adhere to, and they have a desire for the common good. You wouldn't call it a community if you didn't assume that somewhere underneath it all, they have a desire for common good, for mutual care and support of one another. So Paul looks at the church and he sees a community who are living together for the common good. But then just a couple of words on in this this verse 27, he describes them in a different way. 
He says, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind or soul striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together, he says this time. Conduct yourselves, be citizens, but then strive together. And again, this is an interesting and unusual Greek word that he has chosen there. It literally means to wrestle together against something. Or some versions say contending side by side. The idea here from the Greek, sun athleo, you can hear the word athlete in there. The idea here is of athletic activity. The idea here is he's looking out at the church and not just seeing a community, but seeing a team. This is a team, you know, in a competition with an opponent that they need to press against and win something over. There is a job to do, a goal to achieve as they work together. A team is distinct from a community because we form a side together against opposition. We push together to achieve the same goal. And as Paul looks at the church, he recognizes that they function in those two kinds of ways and many others. But here he's bringing out their community life. Why? Why does he think about their community life? Because he knows that there are some people, or maybe all of them, going through some difficult things. Struggling, needing support, needing strength, needing togetherness, needing encouragement. And a community shares together in those times, encourages and blesses one another. But as he looks at them, he also sees the team. Why? Because he knows that they are opposed In fact, that is some of the reason for their suffering. They are facing opposition. They are facing pressing in from the enemy, from hostile people in the world around them. And he wants them to understand that together they are not just a community that might huddle in on each other to look after each other, but also a team that can face outwards and push back against what the enemy is trying to press in with. Two things, two aspects of our church life together. And I wonder what your experience has been of church life so far in your journey with Jesus. I wonder which one of those pictures might ring most true for you. You might think, yes, I definitely know I've experienced this. I've definitely experienced the strengthening community of church life that has helped me through difficult times. Maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you might think, no, I have definitely experienced team life in church. I found my role. I found the part that I need to play. I'm enjoying working together with others to accomplish God's purposes and see the enemy defeated. Perhaps that's been your connection and your experience of church. It can be different things that will come to the fore. In different seasons of our lives, we will experience the body of Christ in those different kinds of ways. And maybe the Holy Spirit is wanting to emphasize for us one or the other at this time. Maybe if we've been on the front line of team life for a while, maybe we need to remember we can let the community 
come and, and pour in and minister to us the strength of God's people together. Maybe if actually we've been receiving like that for a while, maybe the Holy Spirit is nudging us to step back in to our role, to find our place, to work together with the team again. Or maybe we're the kind of person we haven't quite yet stepped into the heart of things enough to experience either of those things. We've been hanging at the edges and the Holy Spirit is saying, you can step in. You can understand the church in these ways. Or maybe we're exactly where the Lord wants us at this moment, exactly where we need to be, experiencing the church life in exactly the way we need to. That maybe we should take a moment just now and ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, is there one or other of those images that you want to lay into my heart, put into my heart for this coming season? Let's ask the Lord to show us that. But if we have had any experience at all of church life like a team, we will definitely understand and have come up against opposition too. Because that is the definition of a team. You have opponents. And as soon as we start to work together with others, seeking to see kingdom goals achieved in the world or through our lives, we will find that the enemy likes to press back in to discourage us. And to rob us of our faith and our joy in Jesus. I was thinking about this back to a time when I was working with the New Life congregation many years ago. And we were starting to plant a church from the New Life congregation on an estate in Charlton called the Cherry Orchard Estate. And things had been going so well. We'd seen many converts come, well, a little handful, I should say, of converts from this estate. People who had come from completely unchurched backgrounds, knew nothing really about Jesus before, but they had met with people, met with the church, and they had met with Jesus and given their lives to him. And there were some huge transformations, wonderful testimonies, baptisms going on. And we had this little pocket of people all living on the same estate, and we were um, felt led by the Lord that now was the time to sort of plant it into a church and to see that take root and grow. And we started to do that. And I remember the first kind of big evangelistic event that we decided to do on this estate. It was during the summer project. So we had a team with us and we had some other people there as well. All the people from New Life, the people who lived on the cherry orchard, the people who were going to plant there. And we all kind of came together. And we put on a barbecue for the people who lived there. And, you know, you would think that this would be like just the simplest and smoothest evangelistic event ever, especially as we'd seen so much fruit already, loads of good stuff going on in people's lives. And I remember this event, it started off quite well, but about halfway through, things started to go wrong. Mainly, I think, because some of the residents had been bringing quite a lot of alcohol with them and had been drinking it during the course of the barbecue. And it got to the point, not only where they'd had enough to drink that it was starting to become a bit rowdy, but also the point where someone was going to share their testimony and preach about Jesus from the front of the barbecue. And this guy got up to share, and he started to preach, and he started to talk about Jesus. And something he said hit a button with somebody, and it just suddenly kicked off. 
these people, there were some people there who were smashing bottles and threatening people. There were kids all around. Like the whole thing got suddenly very dangerous and very concerning and not a friendly church barbecue anymore. And yeah, so we kind of had to pack the whole thing down quite quickly in a calm it, calm it, separate, kids go home, but take everything away, sweep up the broken glass, all the stuff that was about to erupt. And I remember going home from that time just feeling so discouraged initially. I was like, Lord, this is ridiculous. Like, everything, it was, it's robbed our witness completely. Now everyone, if they're not laughing at us, they're angry with us, those people who live there. All those new Christians on the estate are feeling all embarrassed about what happened. The kids are terrified to come to anything that we do anymore. You know, it was like a really discouraging thing. And we felt like all the fruit was gone. Until we started to pray and encourage one another and remind one another, no, but this is what the enemy does. We push out and take some ground. He tries to push back and discourage us and rob us of our faith and our joy. And maybe some of us have found those dynamics in our lives. Maybe not so dramatically, but we take a little step forward for Jesus and then something comes back. Maybe that same week or that same day or whatever, that same month. And it just seems to rob us, to steal away our joy and our faith in the Lord and our expectation of what he is wanting to do. And when those things happen, we need to remember that we're a team. We're not on our own facing these things. We need to get our brothers and sisters alongside of us and say, come on, guys, you are taking ground in the Lord Jesus. Don't be discouraged by this. Things were changing. Don't think that that's all gone. The Lord is still on the move. The Lord is still at work. He will help us to overcome this. Just like when you're playing a game of you know, football, if that's what you're into, or whatever it might be. One side comes in, gets the goal. Everybody could on the other team could just be like, oh, no. You know, sometimes they do, don't they? You watch them like that, and you see that all the life drains out of the team. We're going to lose now. But the teams that do well are the ones that say, right, now we're coming back in force. Right, let's keep going. We're going to get our goal this time. And that's how we need to help each other, because on our own, we're going to find opposition is discouraging. But together, we remind each other opposition is inevitable, natural, a part of what it means to be on a team seeking to achieve kingdom goals and purposes for the Lord Jesus. And we can push forward and we can overcome. And Paul is such an amazing example of that for us in these verses. Because look at the opposition that Paul faces in these verses. He brings it out. There are three types, at least, of opponents and opposition that Paul is facing. Verse 13, he talks about his circumstances that are opposing him, his imprisonment, the chains that he is wearing, the Roman guards that are guarding him and restricting his movements and his life. His circumstances were full of opposition. It was not a nice place to be in a Roman jail. And then in verses 15 to 17, he starts to describe how other Christians are part of the opposition or people who are calling themselves Christians, perhaps. 
It's such a sad bit, isn't it, where he's talking about that, saying there are people out there talking about Jesus, but actually their motive is not really to see people coming into the kingdom so much as to cause trouble for me while I'm in prison. He says there are other Christians out there who are preaching Jesus, but it is out of envy. In other words, we think Paul thinks far too highly of himself. He's got far too big of a following. Everybody likes him. Everyone loves his preaching. We're a bit glad he's in prison right now because we all think he's a bit too big for his boots. So now we're going to step into the gap. We're going to show you how you really preach. You know, you can, you can do it in a nicer way than Paul. You don't have to get yourself in prison. We can talk about Jesus in a softer kind of way that doesn't cause so much of a stir. You can, you can imagine it, can't you? That's the kind of stuff that was going on in some of these Christians. And they're kind of a bit glad that this dynamic, spirit-filled, charismatic person that was seeing so many converts coming into the kingdom is shut up in prison. And we'll just come, we'll take his ministry place, we'll take his following, we'll take his converts, and, you know, maybe even cause a bit more trouble for him by sort of whispering to the authorities, no, we're not like that Paul guy, we do it a bit differently, you know, blame him, we're all right. You know, this is the kind of stuff that was happening, trying to make trouble for him, trying to stir things up in the political realm. Paul was facing enormous relational opposition, circumstantial opposition, but relational opposition. These people preaching in that way would undoubtedly be people he knew, possibly even people that he had brought to the Lord or been a part of their journey. That is so sad, isn't it? Imagine in your most vulnerable moments, the people you thought you'd look to for encouragement and strength being the very ones who turn against you and try to make things worse for you. Sometimes these things happen in our lives. We face relational opposition that we don't even understand where it's come from. Why is this being stirred up against me? I haven't deserved it. And then in verse 20 and 22, 20 to 22, we can read about Paul talking about a different kind of opposition. This time, he's acknowledging the threat of death that hangs over him. There's a a sentence of execution that he knows is very likely coming because you don't hang around in a Roman prison for too long before one of two things happen. You've either got to be completely exonerated and set free or probably they're going to put you to death, because otherwise you're just in the way. So he knows. He's, he's not stupid. He understands the way things work. He knows very likely there's a sentence of death hanging over him, that he may well end his days being executed for the name of Jesus. And he's talking about that, expressing the thoughts that are in his mind. That pressure is an internal kind of pressure, isn't it? He must have been grappling with how that would feel. What will it mean if I have to give my life for Jesus? How do I feel about that? There's a spiritual pressure, the threat of death. There is an emotional pressure about what I will leave behind and what will be going on. Paul was experiencing all kinds of opposition, circumstantial, relational, spiritual and emotional, the internal pressure. He was experiencing all of those kind of things. I wonder if there are some of us here today 
who are experiencing those kinds of pressures. One or the other or all three or some other kind. And my question for us is, is there a way that we, like Paul, can find joy even in that place? Because Paul says twice, doesn't he, I rejoice. I rejoice. I rejoice. He somehow has a way of handling this stuff that is probably a bit different from how we would naturally handle it. Because when you think about Paul, what is fascinating is in the face of all of those different types of opposition, he seems to emerge as like the world's biggest glass half full kind of person, doesn't he, rather than the other way around. It's almost funny. When I went back and read the verses again, I started to smile because I was like, Paul is hilarious in these verses. The way he describes his pressures and then kind of somehow makes out like those pressures are the best thing that's ever happened to him. It's hilarious when you come back. Think about it. He talks about the Romans and the prisons and the chains and his circumstances. And then he starts saying, but you know what? At least they're all hearing about Jesus. Those Roman guards, at least I'm able to preach to them every time they come and bash me about a bit and throw my food at my feet. I can tell them about Jesus. And everybody Everybody's heard, he says, and some of them are turning to Jesus, and so this is all worth it. People are becoming Christians. Hooray for our circumstantial opposition. And then he says, and those are the Christians who are doing this stuff to kind of be a difficulty and pressure on me and trying to stir things up and make things worth for me. He says, well, you know what? At least Jesus is being talked about. He may be being talked about for all the wrong motives, but at the very least, Christ is proclaimed. And again, he comes out with this incredibly positive reaction to something that probably should have been so painful and upsetting for him as these people were turning against him. No, no, at least Christ is being proclaimed. I can find some joy there. And then finally, as he talks about the threat of death that is hanging over him, he says in the middle of it all, but you know what? It's Actually, it would be great to just be with Jesus anyway, wouldn't it? You know what? Dying, that's fine with me. At least I'll get to go and be with the Lord. He's got this hilarious ability to find joy in these incredibly difficult circumstances. And where does that come from? Is he just some kind of insane, superhuman, glass-half-full person No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think he's a human being exactly the same as you or me. And I think that it's not that he didn't find these things hard or painful or discouraging or difficult because we read in other letters and in other places when he's writing to the Christians, we read that he did find these things hard and painful and difficult And he talks about the sorrow of people turning away from him, turning their backs on him. And he talks about the sorrow of suffering beatings in the name of Jesus and so on. It was hard. It's not that he didn't feel the pain and the discouragement. But somehow Paul has got these these sources of joy, these resources of joy 
that when these pressures and oppositions come, he can, it's like he can reach in and draw something out from them. When the pressure is on, he knows where to go to get a good handful of joy and grace and release and blessing and something he can rejoice in. He knows where to go. And there are some clues for us in the text about where he finds those sources and pockets of joy. There's this word that comes up twice in the passage that we've read. It's the word progress in some of our translations. In verse 12 and in verse 25, Paul talks about progress, the progress of the gospel in verse 12. And then later on in verse 25, the progress of the Christians who are growing in their faith. There is a pressing forward idea. And actually the word, again, it's, this passage is full of unusual Greek words, which means that Paul had certain things in his mind when he was writing it. He, the imagery in his mind as he picked those words matters. And this word progress is it's kind of literally the idea of, you know, when you're beating your way through a jungle like we all do all the time here in London. But, you know, when you see those pictures of the guys in their safari hats and they have a stick and they're kind of beating out the path, yeah, like that so that they can get through. Progress. That's what he's talking about. He's like, there are some things that are forging forwards that give me joy. Things that are continuing to move forward in God's purposes and they bring great joy to me. So in verse 12, he talks about the progress, the forging forward of the gospel, the good news of Jesus going out. And he recognizes it is going out. Regardless of my imprisonment, the gospel is still forging forwards. It's making progress. It's getting out there. And you know what? For Paul, he finds genuine joy in that truth. Do we? Do we, when life is tough, have the ability to reach into that bag and find some joy? The gospel is going forth and people are responding to Jesus and things are changing across the world. We may feel like we haven't seen enough of that path beaten out where we are, but you know what? Somewhere around here on the planet, right now, right this second, somebody is falling on their knees and giving glory to Jesus and saying, I found my Savior. I'm coming to the kingdom. That is happening. That is the truth. The church is growing at huge, phenomenal rates in some of the most pressured and difficult parts of the world. These things are going on and Paul found a genuine joy in this truth. It made him happy to know that there was the gospel going forward. And if we love Jesus here in this room today, if we do love him and want to follow him and want to know him better, I promise you we will find with the Spirit's help that these things can help us rejoice too, even in our ridiculously difficult circumstances or terribly painful relationships or awful internal struggles that we're going through, even in the midst of all of that, because Paul was an ordinary human being just like you, just like me. But if we let the Lord help us, we can find joy in these places and it will start to flood up and gush out and be part of our worship and part of our faith 
flooding back in, part of our confidence to keep moving forward in Jesus. You know, Jesus tells us in his own words, he says, there is more joy in heaven when one sinner repents than over 99 righteous people who don't really need any repentance. That's the words of Jesus. Now, they're actually really powerful, challenging words because what he's saying is not that, oh, I don't care about all these people who love me here in Ixus Forest Hill. He's not saying that. He's saying, this is joyful. <gasps> but let me tell you how incredibly joyful it is when a new person gives their life to Jesus. Heaven is roaring with joy. And you know what? The more we get to know Jesus, the more we will love the things that he loves and the more we will rejoice in the things that he rejoices in and the more that we will find um, help and strength and encouragement in the things that he is about, that are on his heart, that are first and foremost in his mind, we will find that those things too can release joy to us. You know, I often talk about the spiritual high of evangelism, you know, and there is nothing quite like sharing our faith, whether it is with somebody we know really well in the private conversation, whether it is on the street in a kind of cold contact moment. But when we do it, there is a joy that comes. And let me promise you, people of God, if you're someone who thinks that you wouldn't find joy in it, let me tell you, every person I know, when they have had that conversation, that little moment where they've been able to share something about Jesus with somebody who's hungry for it, somebody who wants to receive it, somebody who wants to take it on board, even if they're not ready to say, what must I do to be saved yet? There is a joy and an exhilaration and a flood of the Holy Spirit that enters in there that is like nothing else that we do in our faith. Even, let me say this, even nothing like the most beautiful, wonderful worship time that we might have. There is something else. Do you know why? Because we are moving with the purposes of God in getting another person into that worship time. And Jesus wants it increasing. So there is a particular joy that comes when we get on with his word, sharing it with those around Around us, there is a particular kind of joy that breaks through in very deep places, and the Lord wants us to understand it and receive from it because life is full of opposition. And sometimes we need to push ourselves a little bit to tap in to those resources of joy. There are all kinds of ways you can do it. You can come out with us on church on the street, or if that's not your thing, you can think about creative ways to, to open conversations with your friends and your family and those that you know and love around you who don't yet know Jesus. I was thinking about some ladies where, that I did a Bible study with for a while, and we were reading the story about Jesus turning water into wine, and they just got this brilliant idea as we were talking about the story. We were all Christians in the room. And they were like, this story is so brilliant. It just tells us so many brilliant things about Jesus. It would be so good if we could just share this with all of our friends who don't know Jesus and, and think Jesus is something else. Who think that Jesus is, you know, some kind of buttoned up sort of really like religious kind of person. And not somebody I want to know. And they're like, they think he's like that. But instead, look, he's a party guy. He's dancing at the wedding with all of his friends. He's turning the water into wine. He loves people. He loves celebration. We want to share this. 
And so as we were talking, we just did this um, lovely creative act. We went out and bought a bunch of cheap wine glasses from Sainsbury's and like some little, you know, those little bottles of wine you can get, the kind of one or two glasses. And we bought a bunch of those things. We all shared our money and we bought them so that everybody had one each, a glass and a bottle. And then we put them in some bags and we put some beautiful ribbon around them. And people wrote out in their own handwriting the story in their own words of what Jesus did at the wedding, turning water into wine. And they put it in with this little gift bag. And then they just very simply gave it to one of their friends and said, I read this story in the Bible and I thought you might enjoy a glass of wine and reading it too. <laughs> and you know it was amazing the conversations that came that is actually really simple right but the joy like I cannot tell you we had so many brilliant stories the stories were coming for weeks from that bible study or like my friend looked at it the other day they couldn't get over it you know that it was just really beautiful I want to encourage us that there are sources of joy and I'm going to finish very soon with this last point Because there is another kind of progress Paul talks about in verse 25. The progress of the saints. The progress of Christians growing in their faith. Paul finds a genuine joy in seeing the church grow and mature in their faith. Go deeper with him. Because there is a joy that we find in our own lives when we get stretched spiritually. And when we learn something new about Jesus, when we take a step out of the comfort zone into something else, when we're challenged, you know, when we decide, I know, I'm going to learn New Testament Greek so I can read the Bible in Greek. That might not be everybody, but some of you might want to take up that challenge. There's a joy when we do those things. Or somebody might say, I'm going to ask Cheryl to give me a banner-waving workshop so that I too can pick up a banner in worship and praise Jesus in a new kind of way. Genuinely, there is joy. I promise you, I promise you, Matt Raisey, if you picked up a banner and waved it in worship, there would be a new joy that you have never experienced before. I'm not saying you have to. Your thing might be something else. But you know what I'm saying? The things that we don't normally do, yeah, that we break through into, that we grow in, there is joy released in that. And we miss the pockets of joy. We miss these bags of joy in all the pressure of the circumstances and the relationships and the internal stuff and the ah. We miss these places we can go to find joy, to find freedom. These are things that Paul understood and lived about. And I want to finish with this last thought that he brings us. Because as he looks out at those Christians, he sees that they are progressing in their faith. And part of the way they demonstrate that is by their love for Paul. (laughs) The love that they have, the pride that they feel in him, he talks about in the end of those verses. And the other way is through their prayers for him. You know, it talks about in verse 20, I didn't write the verse down. No, 19. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And I just want to land our thoughts there because their prayers for Paul were an enormous source of his joy. 
and an enormous opportunity for the release of the Holy Spirit. He calls it the provision of the Spirit of Jesus. And that word provision, again, another of these interesting Greek words Paul uses. Do you know what it actually means? It's talking about somebody who leads a corporate dance. <laughs> the provision of the Spirit, a dance leader, like Brenda. Somebody who can gather people into a movement that is not just picking up the stick and beating the pathway, because although that is positive, it is not very beautiful, <laughs> and it's not very full of grace. But suddenly, with the provision of the Spirit, with the release of the Holy Spirit that comes when the church is praying for one another in the times of difficulty and pressure and need, suddenly that movement takes on a grace and a beauty that dance brings to movement. We can walk up the aisle or we can dance down it. And if we dance, there is a joy released. There is something that happens, something that breaks open, something that flows forth that is gracious and beautiful for everybody. And we need a bit more of that kind of joy. We were tasting it this morning, weren't we, in our worship time. We were tasting those moments of joy and grace breaking forth the provision of the Spirit of Jesus, leading us in not just a march, but actually a dance for the purposes of God. Because if we're going to see anything good happen for Jesus and his kingdom here in Ixthus Forest Hill, and we do, but if we're going to see any more of it, then we're going to face some pressure back and we need to learn how to release joy and find joy for one another and for ourselves. And I have a way that I'd love us to pray as we close, if that's all right. Martin, because I was thinking I'd like us to respond in a particular way this morning. So let's just be quiet for a moment. Just be quiet in our hearts. Just let whichever piece of what I've shared that is particularly ringing around your heart, let that just land for a moment. Lord Jesus, Lord, I just pray for this wonderful company of people here today. And I want to thank you for all the progress that is being made in our lives, in our church life together, in our life before you, in our outreach. Thank you, Lord. You're doing so much, but Lord, we also feel the pressure at times. Lord, you help us to find those sources of joy, to receive from the joy that you want to give us. And above all, make us a prayerful people, I pray, for one another. Help us to know the power and the beauty of prayer for one another that releases the provision of the Spirit Help us to carry each other in our prayers and our thoughts far more than we even do so that we can keep moving forward as a team and seeing more of your kingdom purposes achieved. Let your living word abide in me.
let your lead. 